0: Darkcast Network. Indie pods with a dark side.
1: July 17th, 1983. A small pro-Soviet and kgb influence Indian newspaper called The Patriot publishes a front-page article entitled, AIDS May Invade India. Mystery Disease Caused by American Experiments This fantastical story cited a letter from a secretive yet well-known American scientist and anthropologist. He accused the Pentagon of intentionally creating and spreading the AIDS virus. At the time, it was still a mysterious and deadly new disease. So Soviet disinformation experts created this fictitious account of an apparent covert biological weapons program one that went to the highest levels of the U.S. government. The article in question insisted that, quote, These menacing experiments seem to have gone out of control, and plans are being hatched to hastily transfer them from the U.S. to other countries, primarily developing nations where governments are pliable to Washington's pressure and persuasion. End quote. This falsified article was subsequently used as a source for an October 1985 story in the Literania Gazeta, a Soviet weekly newspaper with substantial reach. From there, the falsehood fires spread abroad, all the way to the front pages of British tabloids. And further still, by April 1987, it was suggested that this fabrication, or its details, had appeared in major newspapers of more than 50 countries around the world. A variety of medical doctors quickly came out to fact-check the unbeknown Soviet propaganda. They noted how ridiculous the assertion was and how research into AIDS was increasingly showing the zoonotic origins of the disease. Even the president of the Soviet Academy of Medical Sciences went on record saying AIDS was of natural origin. But despite all the scientific efforts, even after the Cold War was well over and the threat of AIDS became more widely understood, the concept of a covert democidal program lingers to this day, having the long-term effect of driving down confidence in American institutions. So much so that even decades after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, studies consistently find that almost half of African Americans believe that HIV was a man-made phenomenon concocted by covert government experiments. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties. Leaders, Policies, and Discontents
0: Hosted by Gregory Zink
1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a Darkcast Network show diving into the nexus of political villainy and true crime spectacles. I am your host, Gregory Zink, and today I have another fascinating interview to share with you. But first, I need to do some housekeeping and alert you to some of the recent developments related to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. Firstly is that I made an appearance on the Dangerous History podcast with CJ Kilmer. We expanded on my episode about democide. It was a far-ranging discussion where we even got into the potential application of the democide concept to aspects of the COVID regime so look out for that on your podcast feeds and even head over to YouTube and subscribe to CJ's channel, because we did record the conversation on video as well. Related to this, I wanted to inform everyone that I have also created a Rumble channel. I am a really huge fan of the free speech stance that Rumble has taken over the last few years and have become increasingly aggravated and spiteful towards YouTube as a censorious entity. And I'm choosing to go the Rumble route because considering what would get your average podcast page flagged by the censors, as in talk about Nazis or democide, vaccines or murder details, so I'm foregoing the whole rat's nest entirely and sticking with Rumble alone. I'll put a link to the channel in the show notes, but it's simply called Smoke-Filled Rooms. And over the course of the summer, I'll be backfilling my catalogue onto the channel, perhaps in a Ken Burns style of video presentation with a documentary-type feel. Next is that I'll be appearing on the Canadian Conservative Podcast with Russell on Thursday, April 13th. We're going to be talking about the seeming crime wave in Canada and why this seems to be a phenomenon under the Trudeau ministry. I'll link to his channel in the show notes and make sure to check him out because he has some really great content from the Canadian right wing. And finally, is that I'm currently working on a couple of mini-series for your listening pleasure, but that because they will take some time to research and write for, I will be doing a few more interviews to fill the gaps until I can publish more political true crime storytelling. What I am working on is at least a three-part miniseries on The Trial of Socrates, and after that I'll be doing a multi-part series on the life and crimes of Adolf Eichmann. So stay tuned for that. Okay. So now on to the featured event. My guest today is someone who I've come to appreciate both as a content creator and a personal friend. His name is Jack Johansson of the Secret Police podcast. Jack and I started podcasting at roughly the same time. And because of a mutual friend, Alex Sternberg of History Impossible, we came to know of each other's work and have supported each other ever since. Jack has an educational background in economics and is additionally finishing his master's degree in public health. But don't worry, everyone. Despite his linkages to the Federal Reserve, which we get into near the end of the conversation, and his areas of expertise around epidemiology, he's a libertarian through and through, and not a Covidian from Jekyll Island. To date, Jack has specialized in doing a chronological historical recounting of the Russian secret police dating way back to the Oprichniki of the 16th century. Jack takes you on historical journeys that span the entirety of the Tsar's reign right up until the KGB under Khrushchev. It's really informative and solid content with a splash of humor thrown in for good measure. So search out the Secret Police podcast on all your podcast aggregators or check out the show notes for links to his work. You can additionally follow him on Twitter at hush popo, for all your secret police needs. And don't be afraid to reach out, because Jack is a tremendously nice guy who encourages his listeners to connect with him. So with that, I give you a conversation with Mr. Jack Johansson. Okay, so hello Jack, welcome to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. Hey Greg, thanks for having me. No problem. So... I wanted to have you on as a guest, because it seems as though we have a significant amount of overlap between our podcast topics. And by this, I mean we both cover historical events with true crime undertones, and we deep dive into some of the most notorious political criminals of all time. Like, for example, I've looked at the Nuremberg Trials, and one of the accused organizations was the Gestapo. And in my Murdering Marilyn Monroe series. We looked at OKID, which is the Organized Crime Intelligence Division, and uh, that they featured heavily in the lead up to her death. And in my episode about Ceaușescu, we saw glimpses of the securitate. So what I mean to say about all this is that when covering my political true true crime topics, the reality of a secret police acting as sort of a, a cloak and dagger appendage of the political class it seems to be like an almost stereotypical feature of most regimes, as in if you're up to no good as a state actor, it's like almost certain that you have a secret police force. And then tangential to this is the, is the reality of using humor to cope with day-to-day life under repressive regimes. And your podcast to date has almost exclusively dealt with the Russian secret police. So to preface all of my questions I have for you here today, I'm going to be leading off with some cliched jokes from Russian history, and then we can kind of just riff off of it. And this, apparently it started from the very beginning. So one I'll start off with, one joke, is that a Russian man was reported to have said, Nikolai the Tsar is a moron. And then he was immediately arrested by an Okorana policeman. And he said, "No, no, 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 sir. I didn't mean our respected emperor. I meant another Nikolai. And the policeman replied with, don't you try and trick me. If you say moron, you're obviously referring to the czar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love, I love Russian anecdotes like that. Another one I have is, um, is, uh, Stalin Molotov and I can't remember. Some of his other inner circle were out hunting and a duck flew overhead and Stalin raised his gun and fired at the duck and missed. And Molotov says, "Look, comrade Stan, a dead bird is continuing to fly, <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, it really does it really does
1: show how deeply uh, th- I guess the oppression went, that almost every aspect of day-to-day life was was permeated with these absurdities that were so obvious to anyone that cared. but yeah. but but to just to kind of start off, can you kind of outline? the trajectory of your show so far and what sure. the
0: evolution of the episodes has been. Sure. Um, well, I guess I could just start at the, at the beginning too is uh, I, I've, I've explained this um, a couple other shows too, but I, I just like to start from the beginning. So I, I got the idea for my show from reading the dictator's handbook and it just came to me because, well, they, they make different mentions of secret police forces in that book. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, I'm always on the hunt for new podcasts and new content. And I, I would look up some of the organizations that they meant or that they mentioned in this book. So such as like the Cheka or the Savak, the the Savak is from Iran, but, uh, and I noticed that there, there wasn't a lot of content about secret police forces. I mean, you can find all kinds of stuff about the KGB and the Gestapo. So like certainly like the obvious ones, uh, but the more obscure ones, are, were very under, underappreciated and undercovered. And I had some podcast experience from a show that I've a medical show that I also host, but I have, <laughs> that I have neglected. Um, and I did one historical episode on there that I re- that was probably one of my favorite ones, uh, producing. And I thought, well, this is a topic that I find really interesting. I could probably, I could probably do it. And, um, yeah, I, I, I went off and thought, okay, I'll start with Russia. They have a very long history of secret police forces, starting back in really almost almost the beginning of their history with the Oprichniki under Ivan the Terrible back in the 16th century. So so to answer your question, the overall trajectory as I'm moving through through time chronologically. For, through from, starting with their older secret police forces, touching on some of the smaller ones, uh, uh, through like the, through Russian history. So, so for example, the second episode is titled the Okrana. Cause that was like the big, as Greg had just mentioned, a, a joke with the Okrana. That was yeah. the, that was the czarist secret police, but they also had, um, Nicholas, the first had the third section, which was just like, um, a, a secret police appendage of the government. And I cover them a little bit, but they don't have their own episode. And I intend to yeah, finish up this series on the KGB and then end with the talking about like Vladimir Putin and the FSB. So that's sort of that. That's the trajectory I'm I'm on at the moment. After Russia, I mean, we're really kind of off to the races. I'm pretty excited to, as much as I love Russian history, I am excited to, Explore some of the other secret police forces that are out there. There are they are numerous, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. I mean, okay, so you said the Oprah tree, oh, how do you say it? The Oprah. The tree, opportunity. Opportunity, yeah, and and the Okrana. Um, yeah. how widespread were they actually within Russia at the time? Because I imagine that with the lack of communications and technology, that they must have been pretty fairly centralized in Moscow, or were they Literally, all over the country,
0: yeah, so the oprechthniki, I would say, was definitely more localized around Moscow or muscovy, whatever you want to whatever you call it, technically, I think of as muscovy as a significantly smaller state than Russia is now, yeah, I mean, certainly in the sixteenth century and even in the nineteenth century, communication was a big was a big issue, and where you where you lack communication or communication infrastructure, you, you have certain, a certain upper bound on how much influence or power you can exert on people within your territory. So the opportunity definitely had that, that issue. And they would, I mean, they would ride around to different, um, villages in Russia, like such as like Novgorod for one, there was a huge massacre there. Um, Greg's looking at me. Look up because I got this map of Russia right now. I'm trying to <laughs> look at where these different towns are. Uh, yeah, so they would ride around on horses and terrorize these people. Their their control was definitely mostly within Muscovy or Moscow itself. Um, yeah, you're right, Greg. I mean, communication was a big was a big issue uh, with the Okhrana. I'd say it was a little different because then you're kind of getting into a little bit more modern a little bit more modern times with communicate with like telegram communication. Um, you know, you're talking about rail lines being built yeah. in Russia too. Nicholas the definitely started uh, with making a rail line, I think between, so he was an engineer by trade. Then I don't think he started the trans Siberian railway, but he certainly started putting down a lot of the, the infrastructure for like the rail lines to be built, especially between, Moscow and Murmansk, which is a northern city. And that certainly allowed not only just like commerce and sort of like Moscow's influence to spread, but along with that, the power of the Okrana as well. And the Okrana was, it started with the third section that I had just mentioned, which was a different secret, a precursor to the Okrana, but their international influence spread over to western europe as well so they had agents um keeping tabs on russian maybe not i don't want to say russian citizens because i think russian the the like if you're a surf your ability to travel is very limited
1: mm-hmm.
0: or your life is you know at your homestead Yeah, it's centralized yeah yeah, yeah. It's, yes exactly yeah um but for people for Russian citizens of prominence, they would go to they would follow these people to Paris or wherever and keep tabs on them. So not as localized as the opportuniki, but uh not certainly not as international as say the KGB. And it was strictly with with the
1: like okay, I guess I'm kind of curious about what, what was the opportuniki and the and the Okrana? What was their mandate? Like, was it just on a whim of what the czar wanted, or what did they have a specific uh, national agenda in mind, or an espionage uh, sure. kind of
0: agenda in mind? What, what sure. was their goal? So the oprichniki is kind of weird because, so so uh, Ivan Ivan the Terrible had different wars going on inside Russia with other like city states. I would say like like Moscow with Kazan was one of them. Uh, Novgorod I mentioned as well. Um, some of those wars were not going very well, and it appears that for some reason he decided to move himself from Moscow up to a up to a, a village about 60 kilometers north of Moscow. The name escapes me, but it, it's in the part one episode if you want to listen to it. Um, it seems like he just decided to do this on a whim. It's not really clear if it was because the wars were failing. But he moved himself up there with a fortress to a fortress um, with his, with his family and a and a group of very like trusted people within a inner circle, and he started this thing called the uh, I think it was I think it was called the Oprichnina. So the Oprichnina was supposed to be like this government within his already existing government, and everything outside the Oprichnina was the Zemshina, and the Oprichniki. I think I, I'm not sure. So I'm don't quote me on this. I think Niki in Russian must mean like person or person of or something like that, because okay. um the Oprichniki were these people from the Oprichnina, and they were worse they were the enforcement arm of uh of Ivan's rule. So I guess if you want to talk of a specific mandate, I think honestly they were just there to help him hold power. Uh as far as the Okrana is concerned, they 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 did have more of a, of a domestic espionage mandate, as well as a mandate to defend the czar or to de- defend the czar's the defend the czar's government. Okay, and like when when
1: the I get like was the oprichniki officially collapsed when the okhrana came, and then or did it slowly just transition into it? What 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 was the
0: what, what happened in between there? Ah, uh, that's a good question. So so the oprichniki collapsed I, around the time that uh I uh, shortly before Ivan died he sort of dis, he sort of disbanded the group um and then you know between the Oprichniki and the Rokrana, we're talking about like maybe a good at least 300 years so there were different i guess if I want to call it secret police forces that belonged to different czars so um, Peter, the great had one and it was called here, if you want to, sorry, my dog is also barking at me. I don't know if you want to like, <laughs> okay. Cut this no, out it's or fine. Go for okay. It. Um, <laughs> uh, it was called the Preobrazhensky office, or okay. maybe it was just Preobrazhensky. but, uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean each czar had a secret police force, but they, I'm I'm assuming each one of them, if not most of them, had uh, some sort of government uh, apparatus that was dedicated to helping the czar hold on to power through violence and intimidation. But the Okhrana didn't come on the scene until, until after Nicholas I. So I think, I mean, I don't think they came on until. They might not have been formed until. I should know this. It's been such a long time since I had to research this. So they were formed in 1881. So I'm thinking that would have been Alexander II, would have been the czar, and that I that could have been in response to. In the late 19th century in Russia, there was a lot of political violence, as we're sort of coming into the like the 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 actual Russian Revolution that happened in 1917, yeah. and so there was a lot of different political fighting between the government, but also like various groups, anarchist groups around this the Russia at that time or the Russian Empire, and one of the one of the czars was assassinated, and I think that was when. That was when the Okhrana came onto the scene because they needed some, They needed a, a group that to, to infiltrate these different rebellious elements around Russia and help them. You know, keep them from blowing up their their leaders. Okay, so they were they were fairly sophisticated and professionalized by that
1: point. And then I'm kind of interested in, in how Okhrana transitions into. I believe it's the Cheka is the yeah. first Russian. I guess post Bolshevik. Secret police. Yep. Now, are, again, are these the same guys? Or is it the same like hierarchy, or are they again disbanded and then Lenin creates this whole new enterprise?
0: I would say, I would say the Okhrana was disbanded and Lenin made a new enterprise because we're talking about like a wholesale regime change. It's not just a, one czar to another bringing in their people. It's like a whole different ideology coming in and bringing in, bringing in different people with their own beliefs and things yeah, like those, that. Yeah, because those
1: those former guys probably couldn't be trusted, right? They were loyal to the Tsar and they couldn't be trusted any
0: longer, something like this? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and a lot of them, uh, some of those Okhrana agents, certainly the more prominent ones, were eventually hunted down by the Cheka.
1: Okay, because I ask, yeah. is transitioning into more of a Soviet thing, which is what I think more people would be familiar with than the old-school stuff, but... Um, in the Soviet Union, I guess telling political jokes was regarded as some sort of like an extreme sport because, <laughs> according, because according to Article 58 of the Soviet Penal Code, anything that could be considered anti-Soviet propaganda was potentially a capital offense. So there was this one joke that I've, I researched, I found it goes like this. A, a Cheka officer walks out of the police headquarters laughing his head off. A colleague approaches him and asks him why he's laughing. And he replies with, I just heard the funniest joke in the world, comrade. And he goes, well, go on, tell me what it is. And he goes, I can't. Someone just got 10 years after I arrested them for it. (laughs) So so, I guess what I mean to lead in with that question is how, how pervasive was the Cheka in day-to-day Soviet life? Was like off the bat, was was this immediately implemented right after the revolution, did it take some time? And how much did the average person fear these people at the very beginning?
0: Sure. So I, I took some time for them to form the Cheka. I mean, Lenin's Lenin's government had a lot to deal with at first, most most notably the first world war. The the government right before Lenin's government, the provincial government that was more or less headed by Alexander Kerensky it was an attempt, it was a Russian attempt at democracy with the state Duma. It did, it obviously failed. Um, the provincial government failed to get Russia out of the first world war. And that was one thing that uh, Lenin, Lenin and Trotsky had to deal with right when they came to power. Yeah. You know, he said so bre- bread and peace, right? Yep. 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 Uh, bread, bread, peace and land or something like that. And you, you know how bad things have had to, uh get uh, to for people to think that bread and peace and well i guess peace is always a good thing but how you know for them to want peace and land or uh, bread and land it's It's like the very very basic stuff um and again i the checker the checker was organized less and less as Less uh, uh, to less in response to any sort of assassination uh, or attempt on Lenin. There, there were attempts on Lenin, but the Cheka, uh, the Cheka, if I'm not mistaken, predates some of those attempts. Okay. Um, they they recognized both Lenin and the first leader of the Cheka, Felix Dzerzhinsky, who was a a, a Polish man from ironically to a more or less Polish aristocratic family. It's the one thing about some of these guys is they tout like the struggle of the working man, but they really aren't from those kinds of backgrounds themselves with the exception of Stalin. Um, But uh, then so, so Felix and Lenin understood that Bolshevism would have to be forced onto the forced onto the people, and the only way to do that was with a heavy hand, and that's where the that's where the Cheka came in. As far as I, you know, some it's hard to get a pulse on what the Russian people sort of knew of some of these secret police organizations, it's pretty clear to me. It's I it's clear to me that they knew of and certainly feared the KGB and the NKVD, as both, especially KGB, were very prominent. The Cheka, it's hard to for me it was difficult to sort of figure that one out because you're 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 talking about stuff that happened a long time ago. The records on the the Cheka are not they're not great I mean they're the one of my main sources was this very large book that I fortunately found on pdf by a soviet journalist from 1925 and a lot of that described more of like the interrogation and like torture techniques that they employed but it is unclear to me how much the like average person was really like in the crosshairs of the Cheka because if you're just like if you're just a peasant farmer doing your thing out in siberia it's like you know how how much of a threat how how much of a threat are you and is it really the check is is it there is it worthwhile in terms of time manpower and resources to go and you know beat the shit out of you and make an example of you or even just get rid of you entirely so Um, does that does that mean to say that it it seems like more of the city
1: dwelling rabble rousing types. Those are the ones that are targeted by the Cheka. I
0: would say, since we're talking about a, a the Bolshevik Revolution, I would say the people that were targeted were certainly people of the bourgeois class. So we're talking okay. about we're talking about wealthy landowners. We're talking about people connect previously connected with the Czar in some way or that directly benefited from their rule. We're talking about people that own businesses. Just really like any sort of anything that has like a whiff of a whiff of capitalism to it that those were the people that were most i i would i would think that would be most in danger of being targeted by the cheka
1: okay and i guess that means like the previous regimes uh supporters or the be- the beneficiaries of the previous regime yeah yeah so like and, and was this a thing where um they were already targeted because of who they were or was it a matter of if you went along with the program, you'd more or less be okay.
0: My sense is that it is since, since they had, um, my sense is that since they had already, like even if they were, if they went with the program, even, since they had those previous connections that they were still targeted. The other thing I would say too is, um, I I would, I don't think the, I don't think the Bolsheviks really, really, really cared so much. Like if, if you, if you had some sort of bourgeois connection whatsoever, or were from a certain class, it it didn't, it didn't matter. Plus if you're somebody, if you're somebody who is of, some means or wealth in Russia at this time. And the Bolsheviks are coming to either take away your shit or kill you. I don't know why you would even go along with the program. But again, I I guess this sort of highlights a big irony with somebody like Lenin, because his father did work for the czarist government and their family was of some means. So I don't I don't really understand. I, I couldn't really figure that one out as like why like why it was okay for him to be sort of their their leader. And I think what I could gather is that yes, the they wanted to establish a dictatorship of the proletariat, but the proletariat themselves I think it was thought of by the intellect the Russian intellectuals at the time that the proletariat
1: Hey everyone. Sorry, but at this point in the episode, Jack and I were rudely interrupted by the forces of Zoom. But technological disruption being what it is, it does give me an opportunity to remind you about my Patreon subscription tiers, the lowest of which I've priced very generously at $1.99 per month. This is what I call the cheap bastard tier, and I do this because I am paying homage to one of the greatest films of all time, Reservoir Dogs. For as Joe Cabot would sternly remind you in a crummy coffee shop, quote, Cough in your buck, you cheap bastard. I paid for your goddamn breakfast. End quote. And the same applies to you. So don't be a freeloading commie since I paid for your goddamn podcast. So cheers and thanks for any donations in advance. Now let's get back into the episode. <laughs> No, no, no. I'm sorry too. I did I should have been able to foresee this. I didn't get the upgraded version of Zoom. I just got the free version. So I guess that's okay. I guess we can segue into I guess the next joke, which is a Russian asks another revolutionary, will there be a secret police under communism? And he replies with, as you know, under communism, the state will be abolished altogether with its means of suppression as well. So people will eventually know how to arrest themselves.
0: <laughs> that sounds like some 1984 stuff. Arrest yourself. Yeah. That
1: does, which I guess that drives at the heart of all these secret police questions with the Russians is that what it what what there's this push and pull between the ideology of brotherhood of man and no. then severe repression on
0: the other. How do how do you think they reconciled that? I honestly have no idea. <laughs> I only I think the only people that understand that are Russians. There's something there's something about like like you know, I ha, I have a buddy from Moscow and there's really something to be said about like the Russian mindset or like the Russian spirit. It's something you can only understand if you are if you were born into that and raised with it. I think even if you're an expat and for whatever reason decide to, that you're going to make your your new patronage in Russia, I don't even think they understand it fully because how could they? Um, yeah,
1: I guess it's not really meant to make sense because it's in inherently contradictory, right? Like yeah. It's going to hit the end of the road at some point. But yeah. I guess that leads into another question I wanted to ask you, which is, when it comes to either the basic field agents of any of the organizations you've mentioned, and we'll get into the KGB at some point soon too, did these guys, whether it's the base level agents or right up until the hierarchy, do these guys strike you as just cold blooded opportunists or are these guys true believers?
0: Some of them strike me as cold-blooded opportunists or just are attracted to violence. I think if you do that kind of work there's there's something there has to be something inherent with those kind of people that attracts them to it, whether or not that be like an attraction to power or I don't know what whatever but then some of them I do think are ideologically motivated. Um, I guess I could give, I'm trying to think of, it's funny, I can't think of an ideological example, but I can give like maybe a, a, a maybe a, so like somebody who, who was career driven, but also had a taste for violence was somebody like Beria, who I think just sort of like fell. He like, he like had, an inherent taste for violence within him already but also fell into that line of work and it just really happened to work out for him more or less I guess until he was shot um but then somebody that I recently discovered in my research on the KGB is somebody like Jack Barsky who is an ex-KGB agent he's still alive there's YouTube's YouTube interviews of him out there that you could watch there he's he's fascinating I I'd actually love to have him on my show if possible um but he he was a student at university in east germany and he really wanted to become a tenured professor because in i i I don't i i don't know if it's still the case in europe today but back then like a tenured professor was like like kind of the ultimate thing you could be i guess like you you had tenure you it was pretty decent pay and you had like uh as more respect i suppose um, so that's really what he wanted to do. He really had no interest in sort of like high adrenaline, um, sort of spy work. I mean, he had heard of it. I mean, how could you not if you lived in East Germany? Uh, but then, you know, because because he was a very brilliant kind of guy, he was approached by the by the Stasi who wanted him to be, wanted him to be in a, a KGB agent. And I think it was just like one of those things that just like it worked out for him. It was something, it was something that he did find kind of gave, um, I don't want to misrepresent him, but I think it was something that he found to be, um, a a challenge uh, worthy of his intellectual capability that he found, you know, he found that to be something that really gave his brain something to chew on. I, I can imagine spy work is very difficult. Um, and it was very his training was very independent they never really gave him any sort of like coursework or anything he really had to do a lot of it on his own um so it really just it kind of worked out in a pra- in a practical sense for him yeah um and somebody ideological ideologically motivated within the secret police that's hard to say because a lot of these guys are paid really well or they benefit from corruption um Or, or again, it's just what they get off on is the, is the power, the power and the violence.
1: Okay. Uh, Yeah. Because there was, there was this one, one of the jokes is that, uh, you know, a, a guy walks into a store and says, do you have any meat? And the, the, the owner says, well, no, we're the store without fish. If you want the store without meat, you go across the road so, I guess what I mean to ask is, um, it's a, it seems like the KGB or the Okrana or or the Cheka, they all seem. And I don't like I'm woefully ignorant about most of these things. They seem to do be doing pretty well for themselves. Do you know what the average, I guess you would say, socioeconomic status of of an agent would be compared to the populace?
0: Sir, I, as compared to the populace, certainly elevated, um, especially in the Soviet Union, like the government was sort of the end all be all. And if you yeah. were part of that apparatus, then you had some position of uh, position of uh, status. Um, I mean, you can you could kind of see like even with former KGB agents, like somebody like Vladimir Putin, when the Soviet Union collapsed, like that means not only did they lose their state and their home in a sense, they mm-hmm. sort of. They lost their, they lost themselves in a way. They lost a big part of their identity and they lost a lot of that status. And uh, I think a lot of those guys sort of like hoped for or pined for some sort of, for some return to that sort of, that sort of position of prominence. So they would they typically get like compensated quite well for
1: what they did? Or was it a matter of they were able to extort people? They were able to take bribes or or was that something they even did did they take bribes or was that against the idea and other other agents would narc them out for that
0: you yeah, know that's a good question i and i'm going to be honest i don't know i think um certainly that's something i should look into before the kgb episode ends especially as transitioning into the russian federation because there there was a lot of corruption and clearly there were individuals that got insanely wealthy from the collapse of the Soviet Union so there may be i think it's definitely worth looking at what the compensation structure was like or if they weren't compensated well enough if they were in a position where once the Soviet Union collapsed they actually could make a lot of money for themselves
1: okay cool okay uh, um and then i think in your episodes you said that it was it was brezhnev that created the the
0: KGB it's kind of hard to say if like somebody created the KGB because the Soviet union for, for whatever reason, especially between Stalin and Khrushchev, the security apparatus was pulled apart and put back together in various iterations in order to separate internal and uh, like internal policing and external policing. So for example, the NKVD, through that we know of, through the Second World War, um, was—I uh, can't remember the year—but they were pulled apart in the sense that there was the the NKVD and then the NKGB, and the NKGB was more concerned with with uh, sort of like international espionage, whereas the NKVD still remained, um, still remained like a, an apparatus of internal affairs. But then they got like, then again, that was sort of, that was changed when they, when the Soviets did away with the title of people's commissariat and went back to ministries. And then those two, those two agencies that I just mentioned became the MVD and the MGB. And then, and then again, like they were put back together. And then eventually they sort of like came to be the KGB Um, and the KGB was formed in in 1954 so it would have been after Stalin's death i guess technically under the under the premiership of of nikita khrushchev but i don't know if he i wouldn't say like he necessarily created it the the party the communist party and the just like the government in general did a lot of this like reorganization okay. of the security apparatus
1: Okay. Do you got uh, do you got a stomach for another joke?
0: Uh yeah, I always have, okay. <laughs> I always have a stomach for jokes.
1: Okay, so <laughs> Khrushchev, he's surrounded by his aides and bodyguards and he's surveying an art exhibition. And he says, "What the hell is this green circle with yellow spots all over it?" And his aide answered, "Well, Khrushchev, this is a painting that depicts our heroic peasants fighting for the fulfillment of the plan to produce 200 million tons of grain." and he goes oh yes yes of course and what is this black triangle with red stripes and and the painting shows he says this painting shows our heroic industrial workers in a factory and he goes mhm oh yes yes of course and what is this fat ass with ears and comrade and he says comrade khrushchev this is not a painting this is a mirror this is- <laughs> <laughs> so, so you did Really great episode about Khrushchev. Can you kind of explain his contribution to the secret police and how, what, what came out of his, I guess, I don't know what you call it. Ministry, his, his term, what, what came out of
0: that? Oh man, Khrushchev was probably my, of all these leader is probably my favorite because he just seems like the most like, yes, he was a communist leader and probably also a bastard because what politician isn't, <laughs> but he honestly seems like the more like of all of them, like down to earth. Like if I had to choose between having a beer with Stalin and Khrushchev, I'm, I'm probably going to go with Khrushchev. <laughs> <yours, Jeff>. Yeah. <laughs> um, So Khrushchev was really interesting because he He did work in furthering the brutality of Stalinism. So when he was at one, at one point in his career, he was more or less the governor of Moscow and some of his close colleagues and friends were arrested and either sent to Siberia or executed during the great purge. And Yes, though Stalin, I would say, had the ultimate sort of bureaucratic power. Khrushchev, those, those executions and um, and uh, banishments couldn't have happened without Khrushchev's signature. That's just how like the the bureaucracy worked. Now, obviously, he's not going to not do it because then he's putting himself in a vulnerable position. But he, it doesn't appear that he did or could do anything to not have his close friends and colleagues put to death or Mm -hmm. sent away thousands of miles um so he is somebody that directly witnessed a lot of the brutality that stalin had perpetrated and directly participated in i mean he's not he does not have clean hands in any of this stuff so when stalin died and the 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 kgb took over as the ultimate. Um, the successor to the MVD or the NKVD. Um, it appears that, well, there were there were quite a few things that happened that I found really interesting. So, so Ivan Surov, who was the first leader of the KGB, legally could not have the same status as his predecessor Beria, so Beria was able to be part of the. Um, Part of the Politburo or the the Central Committee, but now uh, Serov actually, the the security chief, was completely barred from having that position. So there was only a there was like a certain level that they could get to, but they could never ascend to that same spot that Beria could because they figured that that would be a liability. And so already, the the apparatus and Khrushchev, the government apparatus and Khrushchev are going out of their way to make sure that like the KGB is like prominent, but not too prominent because they want it to be strong, but they don't want it to cannibalize themselves like the NKVD had. So Khrushchev, I think he did the right thing in going that approach, like having seen what happened and participating in, in some of the bloody stuff that happened in the early 20th, century under Stalin to do, I guess, and and the party too, to do what they could to uh, sort of rein in the power of the security apparatus. So I'd say, th- I'd say that was one of his big contributions to changing that, uh, that landscape. Okay.
1: And <clears throat> I guess like inherent with any of these conversations about the secret police and What eventually happens to people is the gulag system. So there's this old joke that says, you know, there's three gulag inmates and they're all telling each other what they're in for. And the first one says, I was five minutes late for work and they charged me with sabotage. The second guy (laughs) says, for me, it was just the opposite. I was five minutes early for work and they charged me with espionage. And the third one says, I got to work on time and they charged me with harming the Soviet economy by acquiring a watch in a capitalist country.
0: <laughs> you can't do anything.
1: Can you? No, you can't do anything. So I guess that that fascinates me about all these secret police in Russia is just the sheer arbitrary nature of all these charges and crimes that they charge people with. And the I guess how quickly they were able to expedite them off to the gulags. So yep. I guess I have to ask, like, did they go like, did they have some sort of a quota system that they had to hit or was it surely they were charged with going out to find opposition to the regime and they did whatever they had to do to just fill up their day or were they kind of just, were, were they forced into these situations?
0: Sure. I, I, maybe a little bit of both. So like, with the nkvd they had uh they had quotas for for grain um or for like how many like of the like they're called um they're called kulaks but so they were like they were less poor poor serfs or farmers if you will so they were like a little bit more well off and just had a little bit of like um a little bit of like free mar- free market farming sort of sprinkled in there i i, I get I, if you will um so if you want if you want to talk about if you want to talk about quotas um yeah they did have quotas for like how many like um how many like uh, grains or farmers they had to round up um in order to meet um these grain quotas because of because the soviet union at the at the beginning was exporting when they first started both under lenin and stalin despite the fact that they were um anti-communist or anti excuse me anti-capitalist the the only way they could industrialize was by selling grain or exporting grain to places like the united states uh, you know, in exchange for either either cash or um, expertise in terms of like industrial, like having industrial infrastructure built. So actually, like I so this is kind of a tangent, but I I find this really fascinating. So, so you know the the Cook brothers, um, Charles and whatever, one of them just died recently too, a couple of years ago. But uh, they're, yeah, yeah, they're like big Republican donors. Yeah. So their da- their dad was involved in actually having um, refineries built in both the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Wow. Like making money on kind of playing both sides, if you will. But that was in the third, that was like in the early mid Mm thirties before any sort of conflict. Um, Well, Mm -hmm. leading up to the Mm conflicts. But I say that because it illustrates like the really sort of like the, the, the free market exchange of like the soviet union gives us grain we give them cash or or industrial some sort of industrial knowledge or industrial equipment so that they can um build up their cities and whatever else uh, but back to quotas um mm-hmm. not in terms of like rounding up farmers for their grain i wouldn't necessarily say that's like a like a prisoner quota, but it's certainly like there's a quota there in terms of how much raw material you're supposed to collect. Um, now you did say like, were they going out and trying to find political dissidents? I, I yeah, absolutely. Um, anything, any sort of like hint of political dissidents was dealt with very quickly and, and brutally in terms of either execution or, or exile. And one thing that was i think was very effective is if you were if you were accused of some sort of crime uh political crime you know it wasn't just you as an individual that was punished they would punish you and your family and extended family so they're kind of like eliminating or or liquidating various appendages of your own kin In order to stoke fear that's, and to make, and to make an example for other people to behave so that they know, like, if you do something wrong, it's not just you, it's the people that you love as well. So again, again,
1: like getting back to the gulags, um, like, were were they charged with, because I know the Gestapo had not necessarily, um, not necessarily like managerial responsibilities regarding the camps, but they were Mm -hmm. deeply involved in it. So w- was it the similar kind of thing with any of the Russian secret police and the Gulag system like were they in- were they charged with running it or was that a separate branch of the state that was charged with the operation and and I don't know maintenance uh, of the Gulag system
0: Sure sure um so with the Tkashapo I'm unfortunately like not yet familiar with how they're their organization was, was formed or built or like their bureaucracy. So I can only speak to the Soviet one at this point. Yeah. And the, the check-in that NKVD did have more involvement with the, uh, with administrating the actual Gulag system, especially the NKVD. Like that was part of their, that was part of their job or mandate, if you will. Uh, not so much with the KGB. It seems like that was, the administration of prisons was so the KGB, like, yes, they had their own, they had prisons and they helped administer them, but they were, it was more of a hands-off approach. It was sort of a, it was sort of one of those things where it was like a different part of the government administered the, or took charge of the camps, but the KGB still had agents posted there, like just individual agents rather than have it be guarded by like a whole Division or army of their own agents, if that makes sense.
1: No, it does. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: One thing I know they did for sure was they tried to frame they were in contact somehow with um, Martin Luther King jr, either directly or indirectly. And what they really wanted him to do was to frame the civil rights movement as a movement against um, like the imperialism of the United States. Okay. Um, King did not do that. He had his eye on the ball. Um, and one thing I said in the episode about that, which I thought was really interesting um. I guess this just kind of goes back to what we we're talking about, about like Russian mindset or Russian spirit is there's certainly one for Americans too, is that, um, they clearly failed to see the, to gauge the American mindset with this because King King framed the movement as the fulfillment of the American dream for, you know, under underrepresented underprivileged groups in the United States, particularly African-Americans, um, And the KGB, you know, they, they missed that completely. Okay. Um, So King had his eye on the ball, but uh, also King, King was unique because he was the one guy that both the KGB and the FBI were interested in simultaneously. Wow. But uh, I'm, I'm planning on covering, um, I got to figure out, I got to make sure I don't, I wouldn't get any, in any trouble, but I, I, uh, I'm planning on doing an FBI episode at some point in the future, but I got to make sure the I got to make sure it's done correctly.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting. Cause I, I did want to ask you about domestic secret police at, at, yeah. later on in the episode, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you mentioned these like long-term disinformation campaigns, because actually to open up this episode, I, I had a, I'm going to be putting in a clip about, have you ever heard of operation infection? No, I haven't. Okay, so I guess the KGB in the mid-80s was trying to drive a long-term wedge between the American public and their trust of institutions. Okay. So they came up with this idea to peg the AIDS crisis as... Oh, on, you've heard of this? I, okay. On the, so,
0: on the government trying to kill, kill off gay people.
1: <laughs> yeah, or just, like, they were trying to present it as... I, and again, sorry, I'll get into this quickly. Um, they found a very friendly pro-Soviet publication in India that would publish pretty much any kind of disinformation they wanted. They had a, a fake journalist in there. So this guy published a piece about how the CIA created the AIDS thing to kill off a bunch of people that they didn't like, and that this started spreading to other uh, publications. Like once one publication printed it, this Indian one, other other agencies started picking it up and running with it. And I guess to this day, when you poll Americans about was the AIDS epidemic natural or was it caused, half of the respondents say that it was a government-created virus. So even to this day, decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union, this like more, this like this kernel of KGB disinformation just tagged along right into the modern day. And then it's also interesting you mentioned the race war they were trying to instigate, and I know that this happened during the uh like i know it's not obviously the k g b anymore in russia now, but in the twenty uh twenty sixteen presidential campaign in the states i was i i've been i and that sorry the name escapes me right now, but that playing into the whole facebook um facebook russian uh infiltration to the election yep. that yep. they they were they were i guess sponsoring rival groups of people to go out and protest against one another during the presidential campaign where they were getting facebook groups together of rabid trump supporters and then rabid like uh social justice activists to like square off against each other and completely choreographed to that they choreographed these things to happen and then people on facebook just kind of bought into it and went out to the rallies so <laughs> it, it kind of shows how deeply these things can go and how un we can almost be unwitting pawns in these greater chess moves right
0: yeah yeah you know that's uh, okay i have so much to say about this especially, sure, especially but- the journal thing yeah so 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 yeah just to yeah i you you're right like there there are a lot of these like um, disinformation or misinformation campaigns out there. And, and it has by the FSB, it's only easier these days to do it through social media. You don't have to send agents across the ocean to come here to, to start shit or, and you don't have to, you don't have to convince people that are Americans to, um, you know, float sort of like, uh, questionable, Um, articles or anything out there to get people riled up. It's way, it's way easier to do that now, you know, with, with the, with the 2016 election stuff, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know where everybody, um, sits on that sort of thing. I, 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 to be honest, like I try to like do my best to not live online. Like I haven't been on Facebook. So I don't, I have deleted my Facebook in 2016. So if what I, about, if what I'm about to say is completely off base, then, you know, I'll, I'll take the, I'll take the DMs from. No, your no, your,
1: your, your team touch grass, right? So yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. <laughs>
0: um I don't, I, I'm not somebody that completely dismisses the idea that russia as a state or indirectly through third parties tampered with the u.s election because to be honest that kind of thing has been happening for a long time like the kgb did that in various ways not necessarily with elections but just with public discourse as as greg has just pointed out with operation infection which honestly was probably a way better example than operation pandora um it's also possible that they've been messing with our w- with public discourse since um it, since 1900 if not earlier with the okhrana. I mean one thing I wanted to say about the okhrana is one thing that they were really good at was um forming fake organizations. So they'd like they would they would form fake um labor groups in Russia as a way for like workers to gather to try to um uh, put together like formal demands to the czar for better working conditions, working hours and pay. Uh, but it turned out that those were just Okrana vassals and they were just trying to get lists of people who were angry to, to um, interrogate them, fire them or coerce them into doing whatever. And I did raise the question in my show, cause I don't know if, I don't know if you've ever read the jungle. Um, no, I've not. By Upton oh. St. Clair. Oh, great book.
1: Okay. Oh. Um,
0: basically it's about this like Lithuanian family that moves to Chicago um in 1905 or 1906 and Jurgis, the main character like he works in this meatpacking plant um now if you can imagine i mean meatpacking is disgusting as it is but in 1906 it was a lot worse (laughs) (laughs) like people people were like falling into these vats and being like you know turned into canned food and sold out there so like people were like unknowingly committing cannibalism uh but um In the book, like, so, I mean, to be honest, it's like a, it's like a piece of socialist literature, but I think it's worth reading just because it's like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a good book. I I mean, I thought it was frustrating at times, just like with the kind of decisions the characters make, but anyway, the, in the book, it's quite obvious that, and just if you've studied American history too, the, the U S government And mostly employers, like large employers at this time, had a really big issue with labor unions. And I wonder how much of that was just because, like, you know, the employer doesn't want to have to deal with their employees. They don't want to have to add on costs uh, to operate their business. But another part of me wondered, like, how much of these how much do these people think that this is actually like an Okrana organized operation? Um and and I tried to find something on that I really couldn't get any sort of like answer whatsoever. Um, but it was something I I did wonder. So I'm um, point being of saying all this is that this kind of stuff has been happening for a very long time. So I don't think it's necessarily wise to completely dismiss that. Um, that uh, the Russians interfered in the U.S. election, whether or not it, the election. had a outcome that you agreed with or liked or whatever. I just, it's something that, um, I, I don't care if it's Russia or if it's Fiji, like nobody should be messing with our elections or our public discourse, even though it happens all the time. Um, now with the, now India and the journals are very interesting because India was one of the first places that the KGB, um, infiltrated their government. India was like a test case for the KGB of, um, Refining their techniques for infiltrating other governments, such as in Japan, Angola, um, or Cuba, for that matter. Uh, Cuba's not a great example because they were already kind of friendly. But they're just on that list. The, yeah, there. they're on.
1: Yeah, they're on Team Kami. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. On
0: team <laughs> <laughs> um, the journal thing is really interesting because um, there are so there are legitimate journals out there in different spheres. So for for um, for economics, I don't know. There is like. There's all kinds. Of, I can't name one. Why Why can't I name an economics journal? Um, it's uh, irrelevant to the point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there's also, you know, there are medical journals like the New England Journal of Medicine. There's yes. Nature. There's stuff like that. These are completely legitimate, um, reputable publications. Uh, but there was this guy named Jeffrey Beal, who I've actually spoken to directly because I had a project with an old professor of mine where we were looking at, illegitimate journals and illegitimate journals are these journals that sometimes young professors that, that, uh, are trying to get tenured will, will fall into these traps where they'll pay this exorbitant amount of money, uh, to have their stuff published just so they can be published. That helps their career. Um, but these are predatory journals. Like there's no, like you still have to pay to, we get into a legit journal too, but typically it, there's like a lot of back and forth and there's like a peer review process, but the predatory journals will just take your money and publish you. And, um, you know, nobody's the wiser, but this guy, Jeffrey Beal at the university of Colorado at Denver, um, had this like database of illegitimate journals or blacklisted journals. And it, and it doesn't exist anymore. He has since he's since stopped it, but, um, Yeah, when i was doing my project i did actually talk to him directly about his uh his his project for these blacklisted journals and i and when you mentioned that i wondered what you were describing with operation infection it sounded like this exact thing where they found a publication that was willing to just take the money and uh publish whatever um you know i don't i would like to think that a legitimate medical journal given information from a reputable source about some, um, you know, distasteful action by the government to actually put out a disease to try to wipe out a certain group of people, um, you know, that, that would, that they would kind of slow down and actually follow their process and like look into it a little bit more. I mean, now now you're not, now you're outside of the realm of academic journal into more of like a, <laughs> like a criminal, uh, like mass criminal uh, movement, but uh, no, that was like really interesting. It's just all these different connections to these different things. Um, yeah, I mean, stuff.
1: I guess we should even note that peer review journals are subject to a lot of criticism as well as yeah yeah. It, it was, remember, you remember the whole affair with Pluckrose, Lindsay, and Bogosian? Uh, they submitted a bunch of grievance study fake yep. papers. And they were completely they not only a couple of them won awards, these fake studies <laughs> that they made up about rape culture in dog parks and things of this nature. Right. Okay, so, I had not heard of that. You've never heard of that. Oh, no, I hadn't up. heard of that. No. <laughs> the hoax papers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They did a bunch of them. They did. Uh, they did papers that revolved around. Uh, let, let me find a few of them here. Um. Human reactions to rape culture and queer performativity at urban dog parks. There was another one. Who are they to judge? All I have to over- say is that's yeah. very niche. <laughs> <laughs> but these guys, yeah, they, they they these three academics, they prove that even peer-reviewed journals are are you know vulnerable to kind of uh, like the, these meta Yeah, these tricks yeah. to kind of undermine the credibility of them, and it just shows, I guess, how vulnerable they are to i mean the true believers infiltrating it for
0: their own agendas right yep yep or if it's like who's financing them yeah exactly so
1: yeah. well okay, this leads you know we're kind of in the territory of like the modern day and the united yeah. states do do you consider has do you consider that the united states has ever had a secret police force or if they're not necessarily secret like everyone knows about the cia But there are like black budget divisions within the CIA that people don't know about. Mm -hmm. So do you consider that to be secret police or
0: not? I don't know because I don't have, and likely nobody else other than the people that work in those black budget projects have any idea of like what's really going on. I mean, I I suppose if you like want to think about like something black budget doesn't necessarily have to be something that is, I'm, Nefarious or necessarily coercive on the masses, right? Like maybe maybe something black budget has to has to do with some sort of forensic accounting that has where you're like trying to check the books on different groups, and it's just it's it's important enough for it to be kept classified. I, I guess I'm just using my imagination. I actually have absolutely no idea. But if to answer your original question, if if you want to, I think the closest the United States has come to having a secret police. Um, if you want to, if you want to talk nationally, uh, Hoover's FBI, I think, in my opinion, that's just me, not anybody else. Um, that's definitely, uh, you know, I want to do an episode on the FBI at some point in the future, but that is the time period that I would probably stick to because they just like, and like Hoover and the FBI at that time period. Period. Just see, it seems like they were operating in a way that that a secret police force would operate. But it's interesting because Hoover, they it's it's almost as if they like op, the FBI was like operating for Hoover. They weren't necessarily operating for like the president at that time because he didn't. Okay. It seems to me that he like didn't really necessarily like care who was in the White House. Like he kept tabs on everybody from Nixon to Kennedy and different Congress people. It didn't, I'm I, I would think he probably, I had more of a a problem with communists, but to, to me, it seems like he didn't care what the, what your um, purported ideology was. He wanted to know what you were up to anyway. Um, Now, if you want to go, if you want to go a little bit more local, um, I don't know if you heard my my interview with um with uh, Alex on History Impossible. I I did mention that it's possible that like the KKK could maybe be a secret police force, but I don't think they've ever been um harnessed in like a formal way by a government to actually like go about doing that stuff. Um, I vaguely remember not with the Klan, but I vaguely remember some sort of like group that uh, that Mississippi had as a kind of a uh like a coerce coercive institution in a way um but i have to do some more research on that so if we're going to talk I'm, i i don't even know if the clan would count cuz it's more of a it's more of a hate group and secret police don't necessarily there's some interesting there's sometimes some interesting like intersections between a hate group and a secret police like the gestapo clearly had a had a specific uh, had a very clear targets of the kind of people that they need to round up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. For Well, first of all, I wanted to say, uh, we got to shout out Alex Sternberg for like, it, we wouldn't sure. even be talking. We wouldn't even be talking if it wasn't for him. And I appreciate no, no. everything he's ever done for me. So I just, I always take every opportunity to give him the praise he deserves. Cause he's an amazing
0: podcaster. He's the best. And if you haven't heard of history impossible, you should listen to it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I did actually hear that segment that you guys said about, The KKK, it does strike me that they were somewhat of a an organized vigilante group where I like I would almost I did an episode on democide and one of the few instances of democide in the United States to me, it seems like is the use of like the use of the KKK by local politicians Mm -hmm. to. To eliminate either enact their agendas or eliminate their enemies. So yep. in some way, I guess you could. I see what you mean. It could be like a a downriver sort of secret police, but they're not charged with the same kinds of activities that obviously the KGB would be involved with. So yeah, you can't call right. them secret police, but they're definitely organized to the point where they're enforcing the will of certain political actors.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. They fit so, the definition without necessarily being like you know formally on the payroll of uh, of the government, the state government.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So before we get going, is there anything else that you wanted to tell me about? Is there anything else you want to explain? Is there any other parts of the story that we didn't
0: hit yet? No, I don't. No, I don't think so. That's that's kind of about it. I mean, there's a there's. I mean, if you wanna. Listen to my episodes. Um, I try to put in as much detail as I possibly can. I know they're a little long. The last couple I actually did break up uh, uh, into shorter segments, but um, I try to put as much detail in them as possible. And uh, I'm always open for like, you know, DMs and stuff. If anybody has questions, I actually did have somebody and I still have to, I still have to look into this. Somebody asked me on Instagram to look into if there was a connection between the old Krana and the black hand, which was the Serbian group.
1: Um, Oh, interesting. Okay. One of
0: the members of which shot Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. And started the First World War, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I'm open to fielding questions and stuff like that. So,
1: So right now in your series, you're at, you're pretty much like what, at 1970 ish with the KGB?
0: Yep. We're just going to be getting into the, yep, 1970s, 1980s under Brezhnev is the next bit. Is that
1: the next few episodes that are going to be coming out?
0: That's going to be the, so Brezhnev is going to be the next episode. And then after that, it's going to be going through like um Dropov, Gorbachev, and then the, the like Chernobyl and the, and Afghanistan and the collapse of the Soviet union.
1: Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Well, Man, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I mean, I can't give you enough credit for the kind of work you're doing. I really appreciate listening to your episodes. You're a oh, great podcaster so. and you've been <laughs> nothing but a great man to me, so I appreciate it.
0: Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I I uh I don't I don't know, did you want to keep going cuz I had some I had some questions for you or just stuff to Oh, yeah, sure. Sh- sure. Shoot the shit with. Um yeah, no, yeah. I, so I I was listening to your um to your, uh, episode you did with Alex from history impossible, mm-hmm. um, about Marilyn Monroe. And I, okay, and I sure. actually did start watching that movie. Like I I'm a big fan of Ana de Armas. I think she's awesome. She did uh, a great job on that, on that. She role. did. That was, yeah. I also have a, I have a weak spot for Latinas. We'll put it that way. <laughs> Being married to a Puerto Rican, uh, Ana's Cuban, but, uh, anyway, so, um, I, you know, it's funny, I started, I got about halfway through that movie and, and it's like kind of, I mean, she did a great job. It is kind of a bizarre film, Mm -hmm. but I honestly, like, I couldn't, (laughs) I couldn't get through it because (laughs) there was so much crying Like, (laughs) and it's not, I don't say that to like come off as like emotionless, but like there's like when it's, when it becomes noticeable for me, like enough and doesn't necessarily like happen in a way that's um, like always carries that like emotional punch, but it's just like something that just seems to happen every scene. Then it just yeah. kind of gets a little tiring for me.
1: Yeah. I mean um, I don't know if necessarily what the director was going for with that, but I know that in that stage of her life, the second half of the movie would have been near the end. It would have been the last yep. five years. Uh, she was delving deeper into a drug addiction, mental, a, a creeping mental illness And she was extremely erratic and she would she would literally on set fly into rages and then come back hours later like nothing had happened and then be completely fine. So reflecting her emotional state is probably it's 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 probably pretty important to include in the film because of where she was at and how that eventually led to her ultimate demise, whether that was at the hand of the Kennedys or her own hand. Yeah. But yeah, I understand what you mean. It was, it's a tough watch the first time. I yeah, I've watched movie, it a couple times, but
0: the beginning, the opening scene is like, oh my God, like <laughs> this is, it's like we're in for a, this is going to be a long movie. The, yeah. The opening scenes were amazing.
1: The ones where she was with, she's her, with her mother. Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, and it's hard to
1: understate how much of a lasting scar that was on her entire existence. Yeah. To the point of not even wanting to be Norma Jean anymore, to yep. just want to be this fictional creation of an actress that she made. The, mm-hmm. the Marilyn that was always happy and on point and ready to, to do her her roles. It's it she without and it's weird to say, but like without her mom abusing her to the extent that she did, she's not going to be Marilyn Monroe. No, she's she's going to be an average person which was one part of the point I probably, I tried to bring up with Alex on that pod was that um, her, her complete, the totality of Marilyn has to do almost exclusively with a balance between drugs, mental illness with connected directly to a lack of a, of a solid family. Mm
0: -hmm. Now that
1: was one of the strongest points that I thought the film made is that If you were just an average, like, liberal person watching that movie, you'd be tempted to, like, throw blame at the patriarchy and this and that. Whereas it's actually the if if you have a strong familial structure with a father that's present, Marilyn Monroe's don't happen. They don't exist. And they kind of I think they kind of the director laid that out kind of geniusly with these segments about Marilyn talking to the fetus and her desire to give the child, kind of the life that she never had. That was a very brilliant, it was also, it was an interesting abortion argument. It was an interesting social argument. So um, I don't know if that.
0: Yeah, I know, what do you, uh, I know this isn't primarily a film podcast. But yeah, you, yeah, no, we can talk you, about anything. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think the director was going for? Because And the, the thing that you mentioned, like, you know, without, without the without these structures or the lack thereof, um there wouldn't be a Maryland. Um but I guess uh to push back on that, like when there still be a Maryland, but a Maryland that came from a different background? Because I sort of see Maryland as like filling both Maryland and Jackie actually. I don't uh as sort of filling like uh um like the niche of what's idealized in that time in the in the sixties of like what like what um you know it's kind of like this is reductive but like what the influencer is today it's like this is um this is what women like ideal quote-unquote ideal women are supposed to look like in the 1960s we got Jackie and we've got Marilyn's so I kind of see it her is sort of feeling like a a, like the zeitgeist is like presenting her in a way like this is what the this is what like the cultural market wants and of and And clearly the cultural market doesn't know about her background. I bet a lot of people even now wouldn't be able to tell you that her life was fucked up.
1: No, I I agree. I mean, I mean, that's kind of the, like, I guess I would have to trace it back to like a psychological perspective. Like uh, there's this guy named Dr. Gabor Mate. He talks a lot about um, the link between hardcore drug abuse and uh, fractured childhoods. And how overwhelmingly almost every hardcore drug abuser has some sort of either sexually or physically abusive background story. And that played out perfectly, not perfectly, but it it played out exactly like that with Marilyn where it seemed like her drug addictions. And again, the creation of this fictitious thing called Marilyn Monroe was this sort of um, subconscious way of suppressing everything that happened in the past, and cu- trying to constantly create something new and something positive out of all the the evil that her mother inflicted upon her and the absence of her father. So, yeah, no, you're right about the the cultural, I guess, nece- I don't know how you frame it. The cultural necessity the of cultural having some, Yeah, the or cultural market sort of, of having... Yeah. Oh, for sure, and, and I touched upon that in my pod series where I was trying to relay the point. It wasn't overt; I did it more near the beginning, but that Hollywood is, in some regards, a propaganda machine, and mm-hmm. that is at the time the propaganda machine was churning out the American dream as having the wife and the and the, and the picket fence and this and that. It's very and, mad, madman. Uh, yeah, and series. pitching. Yeah yeah, and pitching someone, it's very ironic that they would pitch someone like Monroe to be the figurehead for something like that. Right. <laughs> like, right. considering all the evil that was inflicted upon her and how she, but no, she her her drug abuse, her mental illness, all stemmed from her terrible childhood. And just oh, I like, and to me, that's part of the most beautiful part of her and her whole story is that, despite all that she did constantly strive to try and be a good person and everyone that knew her intimately they did reflect on how genuinely like almost there was almost like a purity to her that Mm. reflected well on camera and that's why she was so iconic because there was this innate goodness that couldn't be snuffed out by the world so that was pretty cool um does that answer anything? Just, no. Yeah. No. I just, I'm just kind of I going to pick Andrew.
0: your. Okay. I just wanted to pick your brain. I was listening to that. thinking yeah. myself. Like, oh, I gotta. Like, I want to say something, but these guys can't hear what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got anything no, how, else? So, how did you? I I've been asking everybody this. So, how sure. did you come up with? You, and I sorry if you've already explained this. Um, how did you? up with smoke-filled rooms and was was, is this your first podcast or how did you start podcasting
1: are you talking about the name smoke-filled rooms or just the podcast in general
0: uh how about both
1: both okay uh so just smoke-filled rooms that's an old cliche about where political crime used to occur like there was always these smoke-filled rooms where like politicians would be smoking cigars with businessmen oh, yeah. and concocting yeah. schemes of how to enact their agenda.
0: So <laughs> reminds me of the X-Files actually. Yeah, every time the the I, cancer man, right? Yeah. The cancer exactly, man. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so that's where the name came from. The, the, the show in general, it came from, uh, and I, I think I said this just recently on CJ Kilmer's podcast.
0: Um, oh, that's a good one too. Yeah.
1: Oh, he's great. I I have an interview with him coming out shortly about democide, but um, I think, was actually just quite bored during the pandemic. Uh, like I was mentioning to you off air in Canada here, we were locked down for a long time. And mm-hmm. despite the fact, like I was still working, but despite all the, like, I know we might disagree, but all the evil they inflicted on society, I did yeah. throughout that period found myself at home with not a whole lot to do. And i had already been a writer. Like yeah. I'd already been writing politics for a long time. And I wanted to create something that would be a little bit entertaining for people. And I, I've always been a true crime fan too, reading and watching stuff about serial killers and things of that nature. So I was like Dahmer. That was a great, I did really enjoy it. It was, that was one of the most shocking things that I've seen in a long time. And I give them a lot of credit for being, being able to shock me like that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I was sitting at home, I'm bored and I'm sitting here thinking like, Not only do I want to alleviate the boredom, but I want to do something a bit more meaningful than just writing about politics. So I figured if there's a way that I can do a true crime kind of storytelling uh, trope and then mix in more of my libertarian ideas into the storytelling, that would be a very entertaining way for people to, uh, you know, absorb the information and hear some good stories along the way. Stuff that I found fascinating. So to begin, I had that seven-part miniseries on the Nuremberg Trials, and that was about an 80,000-word document that I came up with that one. So that took me four months to write, and then I had never done anything with podcasting to answer another question. So. Uh, I had to gather all the equipment and learn how to do it and editing on GarageBand and this and that. So <laughs> it took me about eight months altogether to get it's, that initial mini series together. But yes. once, once I released that and people started giving me feedback, I, I was so heartened by it. I was like, just thinking, I'll throw this out there and see what happens. And then when, once I started getting good feedback, I was like, Oh, this could actually be something that I can keep doing. Yeah, and then, I, yeah. and then, Uh, Alex Sternberg he actually he heard it somehow I can't remember how we crossed paths but he heard it somehow and he reached out to me and then we started talking and we became friends over Twitter which by the way if anything ever became of Twitter that's good you know it's meeting people like (laughs) you and CJ and and (laughs) Alex there are good things that can come out of
0: Twitter believe it or not
1: yeah (laughs) so I guess that's the origin story of the smoke-filled rooms podcast no that's a
0: good one I like that I like that. Um, no, and again, whoever hasn't checked out Alex von Sternberg's history, impossible. Absolutely. Make that, the thing that you do today, that is the one thing you have to do today. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And I know you can, I know it's since this is audio, you can't see it, or maybe this will be out on video later, but, uh, Greg has a very legit, uh, studio, uh, <laughs> set up here. Um, yeah all i got is a couple flags greg's seeing my very blurry brazilian flag in the background <laughs> uh you can't see my union jack the south african flag my giant map of the world and then the part of the soviet union what's the, the what's, flag do you have brazilian heritage is that why that's flying or what? oh yeah that's my <clears throat> that's where i was born okay or not yeah
1: yeah well tell me a bit about it Tell me, how did you that's, move? That's
0: that's literally it. That's it. We were born there, and then <laughs> your,
1: your, your parents brought you here you're young, or yeah, what?
0: I was I was born there, lived there for six months, and then I was here. And I did okay. not speak Portuguese. I don't even like my. I'm like 100 percent American, except for you know the the origins. So, my yeah. my oldest son
1: is dating a uh, a Brazilian girl. She's oh, same cool. thing. She she moved to Canada when she was like two or three. Okay. But, uh, okay. Yeah, Speaks Portuguese and everything. Really cool girl.
0: She, she's got more Brazil than I do then. Yeah. I speak, any, <laughs> <laughs> I speak more German and Russian than I do Portuguese. <laughs> did you uh now I'm curious so did you uh because because uh well I wanted to say about your show too that I really appreciate is that you're not just like another true crime podcast, right? Like there are so many, it's such a popular genre and I feel like everybody like puts their take out there. And it's like very over in my opinion, like I, I don't want to downplay any like podcasters work cause it is, it is a huge learning curve and it's a lot of time and work. Uh, but, but I just feel like that genre is oversaturated. Okay. And uh, I do, I do like that your show is not like just another true crime podcast. You have like a very like good um, take on it because I think like What's interesting is you can take with smoke Filled Rooms, like you have like the you have like the smaller story of what's going on. But there is like a more like national or global sort of like take that you can that you can have on it. Right.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, I mean, the reason that I kind of first of all, I when I was starting to make the show, I was thinking about just a true crime show. But then when I was looking at what was out there and I I've listened to a, a bunch of them. I was like, you know what? My expertise is mostly in politics. So I started to try and find political true crime shows and I couldn't find one.
0: And I'm like, I'm like, there you go. There's a
1: niche (laughs) that's opened up right there off the bat. And then secondary to that, there was like, you just mentioned uh, the Dahmer miniseries. Yeah. So there's been many times throughout my life where I'm watching something that's true crime related like that. And then I'm sitting there saying like, yeah, Dahmer was pretty bad obviously, but he's no Hitler. Like it's not even close. The body counts aren't even close. So to yeah, me, right. pol- political criminals are the worst actors that we, that humanity has ever known. You can't get to the levels of depravity and evil that like a serial killer can't even come close. These are serial no, killers agree. at a national level. So yeah, if you're going to yeah. make a true crime show. I, that's why I was like, I got to do a political one. Cause these are the worst people on the planet by, yeah, by, yeah. Far,
0: right? by far, by <laughs> far. Oh, uh, now I'm, did you want to, uh, on while we're still on air, I don't uh, maybe that's a data term while we're still recording. Did you want to ask me about the Fed?
1: The the Fed? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the Federal I, Reserve?
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so Greg and I were talking offline and I did mention this when I spoke to Alex, but I, I was an intern at the Federal Reserve Board, uh, the one in the, well, they're all over the place, but the, the, I guess, headquarters, if you will. Yeah, Hold on one sec.
1: I just, I just hold on. Pause one sec. I got to warn yeah. my listeners who are overwhelmingly libertarians, just, okay, okay. just chill and let them talk. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I have, I'm like, I, I'm more libertarian than anything. I know. I know. I'm like a, I'm like a libertarian pragmatist. Like, okay. So, so my, uh, um, my, somebody asked me, couple weeks ago like what scares you more guns or drag queens and i was like i don't think either of them scare me to be honest (laughs) like it's contextual i guess it depends yeah (laughs) does Um, the fed does the fed
1: scare you more than guns or drag queens
0: uh, see here so the thing about fear is it's like what we fear most as humans is the fear of the unknown most people don't know the fed right like it's some sort of thing that you only read or hear about. And like, for me, it's like, you know, I've been in the building, I've met the people. Um, and sorry, you does, were, an in,
1: you were an intern.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I was an intern there from, um, from June, 2015 to August, 2015. So it was just like, it was just a summer internship. Yeah. And how I got it was, so it's like, as an as an economics student that's like one of the more coveted internships that and goldman sachs um and how i got it was my one of my professors um did his was in the same phd program as my uh, supervisor at the fed so um so that connection helped me like get the internship i mean i still had to interview and apply and all that stuff but um, yeah, he had, my professor really helped me out with a lot with uh getting that and um, no, it's a it's a it's an institution that's always kind of um interested me, both like the the mistakes that they've made and the things that i i guess I would say were successes. and I guess like before I continue, I would say like you know all of our all of our institutions clearly. <laughs> make mistakes. I mean, I don't know. I I can name some mistakes that the Supreme court has made, but yeah. that's, just, oh, yeah. Yeah. that's just me. Um, no, but it's, it is interesting. Um, you know, I met, uh, so, uh, of my peer group there, uh, they weren't all like Ivy leaguers. I'm certainly not an Ivy leaguer by any means. I went to a state school in Washington state, one of the smaller ones too. It wasn't even UW, um, um and then like i don't know one of my one of my really good friends i still talk to um she went to brown and she's currently doing her phd at, in economics at harvard so she's 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 and she, you know she's a completely normal person i don't know dre and i were talking on twitter and um and he was. You, I, I want to. You can clarify, Greg, because I don't want to like misrepresent your. That's okay, uh, go for Your it. questions. Yeah. Um, you were you were asking me about asking me about any sorts source, source sense of um, like elitism or uh, something like that within the Fed. And um, you know, I don't know. I I would say when it comes to uh, like elitism in the Fed, like you'd be you'd be kind of surprised how like normal people there are. Like I don't know. They swear. Just as much as anybody else, um, yeah, there are things that like I certainly don't know anything that's like classified or whatever i mean I wouldn't' it'd be dumb if they gave interns classified information <laughs> information um uh but um um the thing with the fed is like it's it's one of those institutions that's like very academic, I mean, I know like you're talking about the k g b and stuff like that. Uh, publications came up, academic publications came up. And um, the thing about the people that I met at the Fed is like, they are just trying to like publish papers uh, just like, you know, any other academic is. And to be honest, a lot of those, a lot of those papers are so esoteric or inconsequential that it really doesn't have a direct impact on the everyday person. Yeah. What does have an impact on people are how the fed moves rates so that i that is there's no question to that and and that that stuff is informed by the economic research that the economists at the fed do but that is separate from a lot of the economists like own personal work in their in their field so for yeah. my for example my uh my project that i was doing which i can't talk about um was, I was we were doing my supervisor and i were doing mostly me, but it was his uh, analysis that he started was uh, looking at if the Home Affordable Refinance Program, or HARP, had any effect on borrowers that went underwater on their mortgages during the 2009 crisis. So to keep this not so boring for your your (laughs) listeners, Greg, basically that means that this program was supposed to help people who owed more on their house then it was worth because when the crash happened in 2000, 2008, 2009, the real estate prices ven- crashed, yep, right? The yeah. home, the, yeah. the, yep. The real estate prices crashed, but they yeah. still owed, you know, more than that amount of money on their mortgage. Sure. sure, So the whole idea of this program was, would it help borrowers, um, pay off some of their other, other credit accounts. So like car loans, student loans, credit cards, whatever. So we were trying to see if it had an actual effect and that's like a completely retrospective analysis. It doesn't, you know, doesn't have any sort of impact. I mean, it's, a, it's a lot of work. I don't I don't want to like say that um, academic research doesn't have any, have any value because it certainly does for them and potentially does for everyday people because research is always building on top of research, but really at the end of the day, um, honestly, like, yeah honestly, like there there are so there are way more other things in people's lives that have more an effect on them than stuff that an economist at the Fed does, really,
1: okay. Yeah. so what when I was asking you about it, I was more I guess I was going larger scale than you were talking about because um <laughs> it kind of sounds like what you were you were you're describing to me was like the Fed is this big machine, yeah, and and then there's sure. these different there's these different people that come in and occupy different roles within the Mm -hmm. existing framework. Right. And I guess like I was kind of going with more of the, like they create a, a, like, it's kind of like taken as a given the Fed existence necessitates a debt based society. And Mm -hmm. that, especially with all these talks going on right now about implementing some sort of a central bank digital currency, Yep. And shit, yep. like it, this would be pretty much at the behest of the Fed, wouldn't it? And that my, um, my the elite, and sorry, just to and the elitism no, I was kind of talking about was the, the the heads of the Fed are appointed; they're political appointees, essentially of the regime. Yep. Yeah, and and that they ne- they more or less seem to necessitate the agenda of the current government than they do yep. of any sort of sane uh, like. Austrian economics kind of system where there yep. probably wouldn't be a federal reserve to begin
0: with. Sure.
1: So I sure. guess that's what I meant by the elitism in that they, 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 I guess from someone who doesn't know anything about being in it, it seems like they see themselves as these philosopher Kings that know exactly how to conduct the economy on such a vast scale. None of us can comprehend sure. and that they're just kind of sitting there pulling levers when, when, everything they seem to have done over the last 20 years has made things
0: worse. Has made things worse. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's interesting um, that you say that because like, yes, they, they are a big player and they are powerful and they do pull levers. I mean, but they are arguably like the most powerful player, but yet they are only, they are only one player. Um, the banks are players. um you know, into all the the businesses are players as well, and they have some sort of stake and power in the economy, and how much they can, how much it's going to cost them to borrow money and th- stuff like that, or make loans, whatever. If you're a bank, um, yeah. Like for, I,
1: for for one example, I'll just give you one example. Is that yeah? Go ahead. A, lo- a lot of people in libertarian Austrian economic circles will say that the artificially low interest rates of the two thousands, not only did they cause, you know, not, I know that the subprime mortgage crisis was also tied into the Dodd-Frank bill and stuff, right? But that the artificially low interest rates are, are necessarily creating bubbles and Mm -hmm. the boom and bust cycle that probably wouldn't exist to the extremes that we've seen them. If they don't, if they don't tamper with these things, if they let the free market decide these things, there wouldn't be these massive fluctuations from time to time.
0: Yeah, no, and that's interesting because I, I I actually, I do agree that interest rates have been, have probably been in the last 20 years lower than they should be, or at, la, or at least like much lower than like a long run average if you were to look at what interest, how the Fed has set interest rates since their or inception, or at least in the last like 50 to 60 years. And I'm sure that's contributed to the sort of inflation that we're seeing now. I, I think um, like, you know, raising, like rising wages contributes to inflation. Um, Not that that means I have a problem with people getting paid more. Um, (laughs) And so does, um, I mean, like we just came out of a pandemic where at least in the United States, like the government was writing people checks that that contributes to inflation too. I'm, I'm honestly not surprised that we have inflation. A lot of, a lot of which because of, like I said, we're coming out of what, like, well, I guess it's 2023. So we're thinking, we're talking about 10 years of low interest rates and then add checks. Uh, uh Yeah. Add just like the government handing out money to everybody on top of that. And it's really like, um, I guess I, I would say that we should be thankful that it wasn't, that it wasn't, uh worse inflation or like larger inflationary pressure than we have seen in the last, in the last year. I mean, yeah,
1: I, I guess on, on that kind of idea what I'm curious about, and I don't know the answer to this, maybe you do just, it seems as though if there's going to be this, ind- they're supposed to be independent economic organization, like the fed that exists, yep. like where were they when obviously the States was already 25 trillion in debt before the yep. pandemic um, like you said, artificially low interest rates. And when the government started talking about sending people these stimulus checks,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where was the Fed saying, you know what, this is actually going to be extremely destructive in the next few years. If you guys do this, where were, I didn't hear anything about the Fed pushing back and saying that you guys, like, if you guys are the economic mavens, then why aren't you pushing back and saying, this is extremely dangerous what you're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure, like you're right, Greg, I, I didn't hear anything about that either. Any sort of pushback yeah. it's, yeah. it's possible that maybe they did in like a closed meeting that oh, just internally. wasn't internally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That wasn't open. Um, or, or discussions about it amongst this amongst staff as well. It's also possible that, um, cause like the, the treasury issued the checks. It wasn't the, the fed, the treasury and the fed have two completely different, mandates and and functions um but yeah no you're right i i think uh i think it would have been worth like voicing concern about handing out checks to millions of Amer- of americans on um fed's mandate yeah the fed's mandate from congress is stable prices and low unemployment Did I say that right? (laughs) Because it's, yeah, low unemployment. That's right. (laughs) High employment. (laughs) Those are the two mandates. So like you don't want, um, so I guess that means like you don't want prices to be fluctuating like severely in an inflationary direction or even, or in a deflationary uh, direction, you know, day to day, month to month, you know, you don't want like, uh, you don't want like Weimar, Germany, sort of inflation or Zimbabwe or anything like that. Um, and then. And,
1: and this is kind of where I, it gets confusing for me personally, because like I guess if you had to ask someone who didn't know very much about this, they'd probably say something like the Fed's job is probably just to ensure that the currency is strong. Like it, it's very strange that, that. Yeah, it's just, it's <laughs> very strange that it seems like they they manage the money so to speak right like they're the bank of the banks right so they they should be in the aren't they in the game of maintaining the the credibility of the dollar in general and then if that's their job then how come they're so subject to political manipulation
0: i don't know i mean they're not supposed they're not supposed to be subject to po- i mean it's easy easy easier said than done right i mean the supreme court's not supposed to be Subject I to I agree I agree. Yeah. and a certain somebody has been uh, taking uh, vaca- vacations on uh, on the dime of a Republican donor but that's beside the point. <laughs> um you no know, I can tell you too like as a symbolic gesture as well um when I was there they don't they didn't even have like the 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 president that they had a photo of and like their gallery the last one was probably maybe Carter if, or maybe Bush senior, like as part of their outward appearance of being a political, like they don't have any, you know, like if you go into any other government federal government building and they'll have a picture of the current president and the previous, but like they don't, they don't, they're, they're missing like the previous four in their, main gallery of presidents so they don't even have any i mean i know that's like inconsequential because of course you don't have to put pictures up of people and still act on their behalf (laughs) but uh yeah and their and their appointees are still subject to um you know like congressional the the typical congressional checks and balances of of uh whoever was appointed that's funny too like so the current Fed chair Jerome Powell, I saw him all the time. Like of all of them, like I, I saw Yellen a few times. Uh, we had a meeting with her too, and I asked her a question, but I was so nervous I couldn't possibly tell you what I even asked her. <laughs> I was saying I was repeating the question in my head over and over to make sure I didn't sound like an idiot. Um, but Powell, I saw all the time, and he's unique because he's a lawyer. He's actually not a trained economist. He's okay. like the first. He's the first lawyer chair that they've had in 60 years so that is i don't know that's interesting to me (laughs) what what kind of
1: what kind of law did he practice banking law
0: okay so at least it's related okay all right well it's interesting that's something complete yeah it's not like he has a it's not like he's a like an environmental lawyer yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. something (laughs) like that yeah what is his law degree in um while i'm looking this up i can tell you that um, Yellen went to Janet Yellen is now the, the head of the treasury secretary t- head of the treasury department. Sure. And that's different too, because the treasury department usually gets a director from an, from an, in, uh, from industry. So like a former, um, CEO of a large investment bank or something like that. So like um, Timothy, uh, I think Timothy Geithner was the, was the treasury secretary under Obama or one of them. It sounds right. Yeah. 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 um, Whereas the fed chair is usually an academic institution. And that's one of the big reasons I think why Yellen uh, got the chairmanship is because she has a, she, I've read some of her stuff. I mean, I don't understand it. It's it, uh, like, so I, like I said, a lot of that stuff is those papers are very esoteric. They're really hard to understand unless you have like the background or like know what, what you're reading. Um, but uh, she has a very like hefty academic background and she's at the, at the treasury. So I, I thought that was interesting too. Cause I don't think, I don't think she's necessarily worked in industry. She yeah, was mean- the, it's interesting. You, you bring up Yellen and,
1: and Powell and I guess this leads into another section about the Fed that's interesting to me as a libertarian too is that um they seem to be very hostile towards the idea of Bitcoin mm-hmm. and they don't, they they seem to be like outwardly upset and like defensive about
0: it. Yeah, they have a bug about it for some yeah, reason. Yeah, I don't exactly.
1: Know. So that would to, to me, that signals some sort of fear or weakness in their system that they're afraid that Bitcoin could occupy. But at the same time, it's so strange to me that, the, you know, there is increasing talk about a central bank digital currency being issued yeah. by the Fed. Right. Yeah. But like, Nobody how, it. how can it, how, how, can it <laughs> how can it how can it possibly be that Bitcoin is is horrible and you shouldn't do it. But listen, you know, do our Bitcoin. What, yeah, what, I think what does that mean? What 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 are
0: they like they're really throwing me off with that one too? I think it means that they're afraid of missing out on tax revenue. I really think that's all that means. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it means they're like that there's uh I mean, yeah, sure. I'm I'm I don't know if it's necessarily like an inherent weakness thing. Like I'm not trying to say like the Fed is like this all almighty, like powerful institution. I mean they kind of are, but on I really I think at the end of the day it's like governments our government every government just like they, they have, they have a bonus for tax revenue and where Mm -hmm. they find markets where they're not getting that, they got to get in on it, unfortunately. And I think the fed just, I think, I think what the government is seeing, not just the fed, but the government overall is this like maybe perhaps like a wild west sort of um, market in, in digital currencies. And they want in because they're, they're potentially missing out on, a lot of money, and then this circles back to
1: like <laughs> it's strange to think, but we could easily envision some sort of dystopian sci-fi future for the United States where there's a central bank <laughs> digital currency, and then in tandem with these eighty-seven thousand extra IRS agents, there's a secret, oh my gosh.
0: <laughs> there's a Fed secret police. <laughs> so (laughs) they have they have a um they have their own like police force but it's for like building security
1: sure sure yeah
0: yeah (laughs) no that's interesting what
1: what do you think if there if the fed did have a secret police what what would it be tasked with um
0: i don't know (laughs) stable prices and and low unemployment (laughs) (laughs) i don't know uh uh money, maintain, money printers like, yeah, like counterfeiters right. Like, maintain, yeah right legal yeah. counterfeiting yeah. um oh, what would they be called oh that's a fun what would they be thing called
1: that's um, something that actually i'm gonna to pose to anyone listening right now if you can come up with a great name for the federal reserve secret police
0: please <laughs> message me or or tweet at us please that would be awesome maybe maybe they could be called like the jekylls or something <laughs> that's a great <laughs> <laughs> only because like the the i got to admit like the the thing that's really bizarre about like the fed's origin is that the the like meetings about the creation of this institution was done on this island off the coast of georgia called jekyll island it's yeah. just like you couldn't have picked like i don't know like something less insidious and, and insidious evil yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you could have you could have gone to like puppy island or like yeah d- like baby deer island and just like had no let's make deer. it evil like yeah you had to really go to Jekyll island yeah to this building that looks like something straight out of Frankenstein too <laughs> uh it's oh gosh i uh, let me let me get that let me let me see if i can find the name of this of this building it seriously looks like like uh um oh man it's hard to it's hard to describe what this okay Jekyll Island oh, there's this building there i'll send i'll tweet it to you greg cuz okay. I, I i don't want to take up too much time but i'll tweet you a picture and a name of this island so your your listeners can look it up cuz it's literally if it's still there um i don't know it's a scary looking building it looks like a like a uh <laughs> it looks like a like a castle or something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like a baron, yeah. you don't it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like a, like, but like a futuristic sort of castle. I don't know. I I can't describe it.
1: <laughs> okay. Um. Well, I got to get going in a minute, yeah, but me too. can I, can I leave you with uh, one since like you said, you're going to be getting into the eighties and nineties with the Soviet secret police, right? Yes. Okay. So I'll leave you with, uh, with a, actually a, a Gorbachev r- a Soviet joke. Okay, Okay, so a Soviet man is waiting in line to purchase vodka from a liquor store. But due to the restrictions imposed by Gorbachev, the line is extremely long. The man loses his composure and screams, I can't take this waiting anymore. I hate Gorbachev. I'm going to the Kremlin right now and I'm going to kill him. After 40 (laughs) minutes, the man returns to the line and elbows back to his place. The crowd begins to ask him if he succeeded in killing Gorbachev. And he said, no, I got to the Kremlin, but the line to kill Gorbachev was even longer than this one. (laughs) (laughs) So there we go. We can end it on that. And uh, again, I thank you so much for coming on, Jack. Yeah, this was fun. This, this is awesome. we should Do this
0: again. We should Absolutely, this again. and
1: know what? It would actually be cool if we could get Alex in on another one too. We could do kind oh, yeah. of a menage a trois type type deal. Well, right?
0: is that? I mean, after discussing Marilyn uh, Monroe, is that what, is that what you want to call it, menage a trois? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen that movie too, and I, and I know you and Alex discussed this, you guys like. I talked about that like very strange uh threesome scene and i and i was like how how bad could it be and i watched that moment and i was like this is a very this is a weird threesome scene oh it was so like the director was like get the camera and all the mirrors that you possibly can and we're just going to like yeah everyone's <laughs> just doing funny.
1: there's something in every hole right there's yeah right it's like i don't i think there's more than three people involved yeah. in
0: this yeah <laughs>
1: But seriously, Jack, thank you so much. Take care, man.
0: Yeah, dude. Take care. All right. network indie pods with a dark side